Hi, everyone, and thanks so much for listening to ShareGiving. I'm Rob Stoller, your host, along with my brother David, one of almost 20 million Americans caring for a loved one living with dementia. In this case, his wife, Barbara, diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's over a decade ago. Today will be part two of a three-part series examining David and Barbara's 11-year ShareGiving journey. Last week, we talked about the early phase, which we refer to as the onset, beginning with Barbara's diagnosis. Today's episode will explore the ethical quandary faced by David and so many other sharegivers of providing compassionate, loving care for someone he's been so devoted to, while at the same time taking care of his own health needs, including social interaction, meaningful conversation, companionship. It is not a simple topic but it is central to the Sharegiver Solutions concept. David, let's talk about it. Thanks, Rob. We call this segment uh, the ethical quandary, which we'll come to. But as a general matter, um, after Barbara fell and the decline was extraordinarily sharp and pronounced from when, from before the fall to after this five weeks that she had in rehab, Uh, during which she was reasonably aware of people that were visiting her, but, uh, and I had the whiteboard there, as I think I mentioned, um, when she got home. I'm sure you did mention that. Yeah, I moved the uh, whiteboard into her room. I was there to greet her in the morning and say goodnight to her in the evening. You could even see then that she was becoming more disoriented as time went on. And uh, when she came home, we had to take precautions to safeguard her. She still was dealing with transitioning from chair to bed, things like that. In fact, I moved to bed into the library downstairs. But it became really clear after she got home that uh, things were different. And her language, most noticeably, Whereas before, she was frequently at a loss for words and had relatively few words, period. Now she had a lot of words, but they were running together and they weren't making sense. Mm. Uh, Her level of comprehension also seemed to be different, which again took me by surprise. Well, I think at that stage, I'm sure Barbara kind of unknowingly was clutching for anything familiar in general and at rehab there was nothing familiar you were familiar and and I guess people who visited but even that in a strange environment which is like worlds colliding I I don't imagine Barbara really knew where she was and who these people were except for you for the most part yeah. It's a totally disorienting situation. Right, and, and in a sense, it accelerated what was coming anyway. I believe it. Because uh, dementia, especially in its more advanced stages, um, what she was manifesting is not uncommon. Oh, no question. Uh, that, I mean, it's. I don't think it's uncommon among people who aren't suffering dementia. Correct. I mean, hospital stays anyway. They don't call it hospital delirium for nothing yeah. and quite often it has a permanent dad, uh, dad suffered the yeah, same thing exactly so 
This segment is called Ethical Quandary because um, we had uh, everything changed once again. Everything changed first when the diagnosis and our life changed and we needed to accommodate a whole different approach. After the fall, everything changed once again. And it's so ironic that we had just come back from a fantastic trip to Peru. Fantastic for both of us. Yeah. Uh, Barbara was still very much aware enough to make good friends, to climb Machu Picchu. You know, we sort of celebrated a trip that And she we, felt loved. And she felt loved through her ayahuasca journey. So now everything has changed again. And um, connected to that, uh, although it wasn't caused by it or uh, occasioned by it, was uh, my retirement from uh, running the entertainment company, which was headquartered in London, and in connection with which Barbara and I would go over almost every month. I certainly, because I was running a public company, and that was, you know, part of the structure of our life at that point. And, and you know, just to roll it back a good way, because we haven't really spoken about it, that I really think you structured your life, your business, you had an apartment in Manhattan, even the business you went into, I think a lot of it was predicated on Barbara's lifelong interest in the arts and theater and entertainment it's a great in point. New York. Yeah. And it was done for Barbara in many ways. Well, for Barbara and, and the girls. Remember, we're, we are, are, a, are a theater family. You and, are. And I will tell you that the decision to acquire an interest in this company that I then ran, which was a public company, we made at a restaurant in the Upper West Side that uh, at a Sunday burger night, when I laid out the opportunity and we put all hands in the middle, one on top of the other, and said, let's, let's do, do it. it. So, yeah, and Barbara was, yeah, really excited about it. Well, and she was central in all yeah. those decisions. Yeah, clearly. Um, she was the uh, theater maven of yeah, the family. Yeah. So. Um, and that's all changed, obviously. Yeah. And that was, you know, part of, part of your retirement, certainly, was that the ultimate reason for doing it in the first place was no longer valid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a whole another chapter. And I continued. Uh, that officially took place at the end of uh, 2017. So it was really exactly the same time frame that Barbara had a fall, Dad had his heart attack, you know, everything was uh, changing. And so for me, as the caregiver, I needed to develop a new game plan. My mindset hadn't changed. My mindset was, wow, I have to deal with this. Um, uh, this is different. Um, the, the, the slide is more pronounced and I need to learn more. We need to explore what we might do. I'm, I'm still thinking that there's a way to slow the progression of this disease. So I sort of redoubled, you know, my efforts to uh, find out what I could do. Well, and you were also going through what everybody, presumably, 
many people listening today are going through, assuming, you know, you have a job that you do every day, or Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week, or however many it is, and then all of a sudden you have another full-time job as a caregiver. Yeah. And, yeah, that, the job, I had that job because obviously Barbara required caregiving before, but it wasn't nearly as uh, the same. Yeah. yeah, well, it was demanding, but I still could leave Barbara in the house, for example, and... Uh, go to meetings. Yeah, go to, go to a meeting. Uh, really scheduled, sure that Barbara was cool with it. Um, in the morning, I would go to the gym at 6 in the morning, Barbara would still be in bed, and I would always say, Honey, I'm going to the gym. I'll be back at 7 with coffee. That was sort of the magic. And a scone. <laughs> yeah, and a scone if I didn't eat it on the way home. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't do that anymore. Mm. Different game plan now yeah. Yeah. that I was trying to manage myself. So uh, the whiteboard changed. Yeah. And now in the whiteboard, I was even more interested in, if not solve, not solving her language issue, mm. but trying to figure out what it was, looking at certain exercises that we could do, trying to write words and numbers, uh, working on these learning exercises that you may re recall. Sure. There, there was a, a Japanese system that I was really interested in yeah. uh, called Space Retrieval, where in the most the simplest sequences of words and numbers, there was recognition of faces and celebrities. So I really focused on these efforts to... Neurological stimulation. Yeah, and enhancement. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the same time, thinking about myself, because uh, I needed to make sure that I was, uh, again, knew intuitively that I also need that kind of stimulation. That, that sort of became um, either clear or brought to the forefront after the talk. Right, but even before the talk, Barbara had her fall November 29th. Uh, January 1st, I posted on Instagram my first poem. And I was to post every single day for the next 500 days. And uh, part of it, was I created, uh, this is maybe a fiction that we tell ourselves, it's sort of like, you know, the Stoic Challenge, where you imagine that there are the Stoic gods watching, watching. you to see how you do. This was a sort of a spiritual condition for Dad and for Barbara, that if I wrote every day, then it was almost like saying Kaddish, <laughs> although they were alive. I was writing, a, I was posting a poem. Mine or somebody else's? Kaddish, for those who don't know, is uh, the Jewish mourner's yeah. yeah, prayer. Yeah, sort of a mourning pr mourner's prayer. And uh, as an aside, when our, our dad had a heart attack and Barbara was more seriously ill, I talked to a rabbi friend of mine and uh, you know, told him I wanted to start uh, learning about Kaddish in the event that I would have to recite it and you know the tradition is you recite it for a year following the death of a parent or a spouse and he said to me uh, <laughs> stop don't you yeah, stop studying the Kaddish 
you might cottage your father into, in, the grave. into the grave, do something else. So that's when I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do uh, poetry, which I was always writing. But now I was posting it, and I was going to post it every day, no matter what. And I literally, every night, would be watching the clock to post by and midnight. So before we, you know, move on, why? Why was that? How was that decision made? What did you tell yourself? Why did it become I told, so important? I told myself that um, if I directed energy to their healing or to their well-being by doing something like a prayer, although it wasn't praying, but it was writing, it was creating something, and it was doing it, you know, with this commitment, that was unbreakable, uh, that that was the best thing I could do for them. What about for you? Where did your, and, uh, your benefit come in? And clearly for me, even though it was sometimes a strain, we'd be traveling, you know, and I'd be watching the clock that I'd have to go somewhere and write a poem or find one to post. At the same time, it was a fantastic creative outlet for me. It was a source of uh, deep satisfaction. Did that, did that come as a surprise to you, or was that yeah. what you hoped when you yeah, started? Yeah, I wasn't at all involved in social media, and as you know, I'm still not, you know. <laughs> uh, as far as Facebook and this and that, I, you know, I wake up. I don't up know why I'm laughing. I'm not much technologically either, but, But yeah. Instagram, you know, friends of mine, mostly artists, who were aware of my poetry because I'd send them poems, said, you got to keep track of this, and Instagram's the best way to do it. Um, what I found in doing it was a sense of satisfaction, that I was actually writing on a regular schedule, learning, engaging with people that were reading my poems. So uh, for me, it was a lot of the things I had on the whiteboard. You know, I was stretching my brain, I was being creative, I was being social, that was a big change for me. And that also, as you are suggesting, revealed to me how important it was for me to have that outlet, uh, and which I could do without really interfering with my caregiving because Barbara would be asleep by nine and I would be at the kitchen table at 9.05 writing a poem. So that's kind of a gentle intro to the ethical quandary. And the ethical quandary, as we've spoken to each other is the issue of catering to your own needs as a vibrant individual extremely young 71 year old extremely young and active and eclectic individual the other side being the need and the intention to cater fully to Barbara's right, needs. Which required a real concentrated effort. You're going to give 100% to Barbara and 100% to yourself. Correct. Which uh, sounds like a quandary at times. I think so. Probably more so for many of our listeners than for David, because uh, admittedly he's a different animal with probably, you know, 200% capacity. So, um, which, which really brings us to the point. So I spent 2018 with a spouse that required substantially greater care, including not just the difficulties in communicating with Barbara, 
which led me to invent all sorts of strategies to have a conversation that was meaningful for me as well, yeah. um, which we can talk about. And incidentally, that difficulty in speaking is referred to in clinical terms as aphasia, yeah. which we will talk about Certainly and we'll have experts. An, an aspect of that, yes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, so for me, who has spent my life with this incredibly literate person who was amazingly articulate, as you've pointed out, to all of a sudden not be having any conversation that was clear or intelligible. Yeah. So, for example, I would, uh, during this time, when I'm thinking of strategies of how to uh, enable her to feel like she's participating in a conversation, and for me to be learning or advancing my own interest, we would take a long drive and uh, I would invent a conversation. So I might say, so, so Barb, uh, what do you think about uh, artificial intelligence? I mean, just as a general matter, you know, the kind of afri you know, algorithms that you know, are now used to enable searches to find things that you know, we as human beings could never do. You know, what do you think about that? And Barbara would either look at me like, <laughs> what am I talking about? Or she might say something. She would answer you. And then I would say, well, okay, so th this is what it's all about. And then we would have a whole conversation where I am playing out everything I know about a subject I'm interested in, mm. satisfying me on a certain level, and Barbara would be in a conversation, yeah. which I knew, and I know, she acutely misses. And we also, one of the things we started doing after we returned from Peru and after the fall was hosting Shabbat dinners uh, every Friday night, every Friday night, because I felt that we needed that social engagement, and Barbara included, even if those dinners were sometimes very difficult because everybody would be in a conversation and she wouldn't. So, uh, Which I know. She is absolutely aware of. If there's conversation going past her without her inclusion, she is extremely sensitive to right. that. I mean, another thing that was new was if I had a phone call, if mm -hmm. I was on the phone, she would come over and she'd be upset. She would be talking over me, and uh, which, again, I could understand. So I had to now schedule all calls on time somehow that... She was either asleep or... Yeah, she was asleep or... Otherwise you know, occupied. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and during this time I did have some caregiving because when I came back from, uh, even before the fall, I had very modest few hours a day, somebody helping me. Now uh, that became more important because it was more akin to nursing. And in fact, after we got home, under Medicare, we were entitled to a certain amount of home care and had a nurse that helped with occupational therapy and going up the stairs and removing things that might uh, present risks. So, uh, and I, I learned through that. Uh, unfortunately, too late to have um, prevented the fall. But, um, so that was 2018 and a learning period something where I needed to 
um, replace what I was doing career-wise with other activity and also raise my game in terms of caring for Barbara. And? And caring for? Myself. Yeah. Yeah. So we spent a year and then we had, then I had another moment that was a real threshold moment where I had a conversation with my daughters and, and I wrote about it. It's on our website, an article that was published called Everything Changed. And this was, uh, looking back on it, you know, extraordinary. I wanted to convene our three daughters, Samantha, Jessica, and Molly, with me uh, at lunch, the purpose of which was to talk about everything that might be on their mind about Barbara, what they were afraid of, what they wanted, how they might want to participate, what they you know, were seeing down the road, uh, how it was affecting them. Why had you not had that talk previously? I didn't have that talk before, you know, for no good reason. I think it wasn't necessarily let sleeping dogs lie, but they were never pressing me on it. I knew just a little bit that, uh, you know, I'd learned that Molly was going to a support group for kids who had a parent with Alzheimer's. And, you know, I was in close touch with the girls and was always filling them in on what was happening with us and uh, had encouraged them to call very frequently on the speaker so they could speak. But I think it was a mistake on my part, uh, frankly. And um, uh, when I had that talk, I was uh, influenced very much, it was in the same time period, that we had our talk with our parents that I called, if you remember, the end-of-life luncheon. Mm. Uh, yeah, what a great name. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Couldn't wait I, to go to that. I don't know. In fact, you didn't know. I, we had a toast with wine, and I said, okay, welcome to the first annual end-of-life luncheon. And I'm sure you said, great name, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, yeah, this is fun. But uh, it was fun, and it was also incredibly helpful. We talked about everything with Mom and Dad, me, you, and Lee, that we could, we thought needed to be discussed yeah. while we were all able to have a discussion. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lesson in here somewhere. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I know in terms of sharing with the girls, um, it's probably never too early to do that. Right. Oh yeah, no, I'm no doubt about it. And, and with our parents too, yeah. having that talk before the time comes when you could. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was very mindful of that. I had just read a book that was gonna go in our library called Being Mortal, which is all about how to structure that conversation. Mm. So I was affected by, by that. And I wanted to have that conversation with the girls. Uh, we start lunch. I start the conversation about what I want to talk about. And uh, they interrupted me, uh, led by Sam, the oldest, who said, uh, Dad, stop. You need, you need to listen to us. And in these words, uh, pardon my uh, French, Dad, if you go down, we are fucked. 
And I mean, that stopped me dead in my tracks. And I said, well, what do you mean I'm, I'm not going down? Mm. And yeah, what kind of language is that? And they then went on to say that they'd all talked. And uh, they were, number one, worried about how exposed they were in their lives mm. if something happened to me, yeah. given their mother's condition. And, and subtext to all of it is their own situations health-wise. Correct. Correct, which we're going to address. So, uh, so they said, this is really uh, untenable right now, in our judgment, that you are doing all this by yourself, and we think it represents a real threat to your own well-being. And obviously, we care about that. Yeah. We care about that for you. You're our dad. But we also care about it because you're taking care of our mother. And none of And us. you're taking care of us. Yeah. I mean. Correct. You know. So, and yeah, and even a wider circle. So, so here's what we want. And so they then proceeded to lay out their conditions that they needed me to agree to. First of which was to get a caregiver that was more full-time. That I needed somebody that would be skilled enough to take care of Barbara as well or better than I was and uh, spelling me so that I could, you know, have time to do things myself. That was number one. Uh, number two, they wanted me to go to see a psychiatrist, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I think they said a shrink and excuse me for any shrinks out in the audience. Uh, I why? think that psychiatrist is now in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> why did they want me to see a shrink? Because they were certain, knowing me, that I wasn't really dealing with my feelings. And that you wouldn't go see a professional on your own. Right, and it wouldn't occur to me that I right. needed to. That's what I mean. Uh, so I needed to agree that I was going to do that. And I had at the time, no idea who I might talk to. Um, and then the last one was, at the time and in retrospect, the most interesting and uh, the most uh, textured. And that was, uh, Dad, you also need to live your life. Uh, you have been so committed, but we are worried about you. You have so much energy and creativity and you are such a people person and you've basically been denied the kind of relationships and companionship that mom provided and Which so really such an evolved perspective right. that it's impressive and surprising that it came from the girls correct uh, and as I'll relate it was more nuanced than I was uh, thinking in the fact of it. So I agreed. And all I said to them was, uh, wow, this is uh, stunning. And it tells me two things. One, that 
I need, uh, we need to have this conversation more regularly, at least once every few months. We need to do this because this is all news to us, and uh, which we've done more or less. And we just most recently did it on the high holidays. We uh, grabbed some time, two hours worth. And that in itself was interesting, which is for a later conversation. Although I'll, I'll just say one thing about that conversation that we most recently had. We ended up, you know, Jessica, I think, said she's having trouble remembering mom. And when they were interacting as mother and daughter, that she was losing that uh, picture. And uh, they all agreed. And so we spent maybe the next hour recalling situations, experiences, moments where Barbara was mom mm. and tiger mom at that. Yeah. And it was beautiful and sad. Mm. So most things in this realm are, are beautiful and sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so my conditions were your poems are beautiful and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Molly's asked me one time, dad, are you, are you sad? Is everything okay? And I said, yeah, everything's fine. I, I, poems, a lot of poems and poets tend to, you know, experience melancholy when you're, you're going deep into reflection. You know, you can't just be happy. Uh, you know, melancholy is part of the human experience. So, uh, and, and probably, uh, you know, poetry sort of checks that box. Yeah. She, I remember one poem that she, as an aside, I wrote a, a tanka, which is a five-line poem, which I sort of specialize in. And the end of it was looking in the mirror at 5 a.m., it's in my book, and seeing the same face, the same nose, the same regret. And Molly, right away, <laughs> Called me in the morning, Dad, are you okay? <laughs> so, one condition was that we met uh, regularly, which is really important. Uh, the second, Why is it important? Because otherwise we have feelings that we as a family and those of us who are sort of those left behind uh, need to share. It makes everyone feel better. Witness the last meeting we had where they all shared that they were losing their mother even in this, you know, video storehouse that we have of our life. And the story of our lives, all of a sudden, the early chapters for them were disappearing. And so through the conversation we had, we could share and laugh and remember how impressive and extraordinary and involved Barbara was in their lives. And those images then were, could not replace, but be, uh, be there as well as the images now of their mom who's disappeared. So uh, I'm just trying to relate this to the, to the listener's experience. And, and, you know, when I ask why is it important, I mean, I think in that instance, 
you're the family. You're the ones left behind. You're the family. Right. It's you guys now, and yeah. Barbara is... Like she's left. Like she's left, but she has still left. But she's still there. So I, I guess it's something involved with the importance of just talking, communication between yourselves, so that things they're feeling but not saying um, don't fester. Things that you're feeling and not saying don't fester. Right, and also uh, doing things that make us feel better, that we can laugh about. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I said, which is a big deal for me increasingly, is I said to them, uh, you know, you guys are all young, you're in your early 30s, and you're worried, I know you are, deep down, that this could happen to you. Mm. Um, and uh, the fact is that um, we all deal with genetics and you've all been tested and I think it's come back that you are only modestly, very modestly more disposed to this disease than the average person. The real uh, deal here and what stirs the drink is the way you live your life. It's your lifestyle and uh, how you take care of yourself. So I need for you to continue, commit to me as I'm trying to do myself to live a healthy lifestyle, which means diet and exercise and neural stimulation and managing stress. Everything and, on the whiteboard. And getting restful sleep. And all of those things are challenges, I know, to all of us. And there are clear ways to do it. And I want to share what I'm learning about that because I'm trying to do it for myself. So I need your commitment to that, which they committed to. How, how it's manifesting, they all seem pretty healthy to me. But, but, and, and I also feel separately that as a sharegiver, this is a big part of my own mandate to be an ambassador for the science of prevention. That, um, rat, you know, okay, I'm in it. And I'm dealing with this disability, but uh, there's a way to make me feel better about it too, to take what I'm learning about it and myself and uh, helping persuade others that they don't need to just worry about what might happen to them. They can almost assure with a real high percentage that they could avoid dementia based on the way they live their life. Well, that's a function of mindset. It's a proactive mindset. Correct. I mean, the alternative is to do nothing. Yeah, I and mean, and it is helping others. So as we've talked about before, it's powerful. So anyway, we had that talk. They gave me their conditions. I gave them back mine. Uh, but I was a, a little bit in shock after I left this lunch. And I also now had an agenda that I had to work on that was not on my whiteboard. One other thing, it wasn't just get a caregiver who can, you know, be sort of like full-time. This is the first talk. This is their talk, yes. But they also said they wanted me to visit facilities, memory care facilities. They wanted me to assure them that I was going to do that, mm. which was really shocking to me because it indicated to me that at least their perception was that their mother was advanced at this point and that this may be a step taken 
you know, sooner or later. Right. And I clearly had been avoiding that subject. And well, it was clear Mother was advanced because she didn't even really know who they were. Or yeah. if she knew, she couldn't have <coughs> communicated. And yeah. the, certainly the relationship, the mother-daughter relationship, had all but disappeared. Right. So I, I think they felt I was in a little bit of denial about this and that I needed to do that. And um, I did. I did do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah. I visited yeah. all of those within a particular radius that would, if it came to that, make it easy for me and also easy for them to visit. And as I went through it, uh, I was thinking through it and at the end of it that, okay, this, uh, maybe I should do this. this. Maybe this is the best thing for Barbara. Then I went home after it and I thought about everything that I had seen and heard and reached the conclusion, really clear-headed about it, that it's best for Barbara to be at home. That whatever it will be that will change my mind, as I've been told, will happen someday, hadn't happened. And that being home for her was the best thing. But also, based on everything that I had seen and heard and the experience I had of these facilities, it sort of informed my own thinking of the way to enhance her experience at home and what I could expect if she was going to be at home, you know, what might be coming. So I did that, and then I set about to finding a caregiver, which is much easier said than done. And I had a couple of people that I talked to that for various reasons I felt wouldn't be satisfactory. Um, and I did have somebody who had been giving me a certain number of hours to maybe make uh, more full time and um, she wasn't up to it. And in fact had an incident with Barbara where Barbara got angry and struck her and that was it. You know, she was she was out of there. So I went to certain people I knew to ask them if they knew of anybody that might fill the bill. And uh, I'm going to relate a conversation I had, which is really sounds as politically incorrect as you could get, but uh, I think is uh, useful. I went to somebody. Well, useful or not, it's what happened. It is what happened, but it's useful for the reasons behind it. Yeah. I went to somebody and I said, I told him, and he said, uh, you need a Mexican. And I, I like did a double take. What, like, what does that I, even mean? Yeah, what does that mean? How can you even say that? And he said, what I mean by that, in my experience, is that they have an extraordinary uh, sensitivity to people uh, that are in pain or impaired and an extraordinary capacity for helping and for serving and particular feeling for family. Uh, and finally, they have no ego. They, uh, they don't, are, don't take things personally. Don't take anything personally. That's what you need. Yeah. And so, uh, as it turns out, I did find somebody uh, who is with us now 
and has been extraordinarily helpful and has grown in the role and who's Mexican. Yeah. And so I offer that only as these are the things for anybody that's looking for a caregiver. Yeah. That uh, those are as important or more important than skills at toileting and getting somebody to take a shower and meal preparation and the like, all of which Christina has uh, does and has learned to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think David's saying you have to find a Mexican woman to take care of no, your of loved one, but you have to find someone with those characteristics that you were advised are more common among Mexican yeah, I mean, people. Who knew? But in any event, she's been phenomenal. And, yeah. and those, those are the qualities that stand out. Yeah. The part about not taking things personally because, you know, Barbara is subject to fits and spurts and um, gets upset. Um, I don't think she's been violent per se, but she could take a take a slap at you once in a while. I've seen that. Yeah. And you you need someone who can withstand that. Not just withstand it. I would say this, that uh, also is um, intent on enabling Barbara to retain as much dignity as possible. We had one so caregiver important. that was really skilled in all of the skills, including skilled nursing. But Barbara would do something and she would sort of look over Barbara's shoulder at me and ro roll her eyes. Mm, yeah. And that was it. Forget well, it. Um, uh, so we're, we're, we're back on the empathy thing yeah, again. I mean, dignity is huge. At whatever. Empathy and compassion yeah. um, are absolutely yeah. essential. Yeah, yeah. fundamental. The second thing was going to a shrink. And once again, I networked a little bit among friends uh, and friends at the, the temple and recommended to me a guy that was in Lambertville nearby who they said they heard great stuff and really good guy and all those same qualities. Uh, and I visited with them, and it was strange for me, because uh, I'd really never been in that kind of dynamic. And without going through the, the session, he really did want to focus in on what I felt about my situation, and really pressed me, and got me to say finally, which uh, was really difficult for me to say uh, that I was lonely. And when I sort of coughed that out, he said, uh, good, now say it again. Say it again. And I did, not much more easily. And uh, he said, okay, that's really important. That, that's real. And, and so, so, what are you going to do about it? And, uh, you know, I said, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What should I do about it? And he uh, said in so many words, well, look around. Uh, you know, is anybody out there that you'd like to talk to, that you, you could be attracted to? Uh, and that was sort of startling to me, 
and raised the subject of this ethical quandary. That exactly. even though I had been given, at least as I heard it in my lunch, license to go out, live my life, which might mean meeting other people, that might mean meeting someone, the fact of it was, um, uh, you know, sort of shocking to me to, to actually think that way, which I hadn't thought that way in my whole marriage. Uh, I mean, recognizing that anybody in long-term relationships can, you know, as Jimmy Carter said, occasionally lust in their heart or, you know, see somebody that is really attractive. But I hadn't acted on anything like that. So, so that is the essence of a quandary. The yeah. ethical quandary is what, what do you permit yourself to do? Being lonely is not a, a healthy place to be. Correct. And, you know, obviously many of us are from time to time, even in happy relationships. And, but especially for the family member caregiver with a spouse who's no longer the companion that he or she once was, I think it can be really acute and is not discussed. And I think this is what my daughters really were getting at in dealing with my feelings about my situation. Well, um, at least they were starting to peel it back. Yeah, yeah, maybe it wasn't so clear. Um, so the quandary then I had to work through with his help. I, I only, I went three times and he said, okay, well, uh, is that enough? And I said, uh, yeah, I, th I think it's enough. Uh, I tend to do things in threes. <laughs> he said, really? That. <laughs> that's, so that's it? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. <laughs> I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go peruse my ethical quandary now. But you know the way I looked at it and thought about it, and he helped me to think about it, and he was really encouraging. Was I'm married, and uh, I've taken a vow that I've taken seriously, till death do us part, and so that's what I would imagine. Obviously, people get divorced, so a spouse dies or you split. Uh, but this was, um, you know, neither. This was uh, my, my wife sort of leaving this relationship that we'd had and not because she wanted to, obviously quite the opposite. But it was sort of like I had been and my daughters had been robbed of the wife and the mother that we'd had. And that my status was ethically equivalent to that, in many ways, of a widower who'd lost his wife. Yeah. And so looking at it analytically or psychologically, in that circumstance, one would be encouraged. And maybe a spouse that had died would have so encouraged previously her husband or his wife to go meet somebody and you should be happy and you know I'm no longer there 
So yeah. you should be happy. Uh, and that, I realized, was my situation. Yeah. I don't think it could be more, there could be more of a dichotomy between your, your relationship isn't there, but Barbara's still there. Correct. So that still doesn't uh, make it any easier. If I could resolve the ethical quandary in my mind, and that's how I did resolve it, still, how do I act on this? Because, you know, I'm not 15 and it sort of feels that way. The idea of meeting somebody or going on a date or being set up was, you know, really foreign. And, uh, and that then becomes the first step into truly a parallel life, uh, which, you know, we'll take up in the next session. That's going to do it for today. And I know that's a lot. And there's probably much more to speak of there, but that is the introduction and the overview to the ethical quandary. Right. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we will be back next week to speak of the parallel life. Okay. Okay, Davey. Thanks, everybody. So long. Thanks so much for listening today. We hope you found the conversation stimulating, relevant, and enjoyable. Dr. John D. Kelly IV, in a previous ShareGiving podcast, had reminded us that up to 74% of dementia caregivers suffer some form of depression. The ShareGiver's physical and emotional well-being is essential to effective, compassionate care and is a central tenet of ShareGiver Solutions. Hey, there's a reminder. Please visit the website at ShareGiverSolutions.com to tell us something about yourself, your thoughts, perhaps your situation. After all, sharing is the way of caring, and singing is good for the soul. So let's do it, David. I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, I'm gonna walk all over God's heaven, heaven, heaven. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, I'm gonna walk all over God's heaven. Right on. Right on.